Deuteronomy 28. And as we're returning there, just a few announcements. Uh, we have a business meeting after service. Everyone is welcome to attend, and everyone is welcome to enjoy red pepper pizza. Uh, we will try to uh, start just a few minutes after service. We'll give a bathroom break, time for bathroom break and water break. Um, but we'd like to try to start uh, relatively expediently. If I could ask you to join me in prayer, I mentioned last week that there are a number of pastors, uh, one of them being James Coates up in Alberta, Canada, uh, as well as uh, a few other more local ones uh, that I wanted to place before you, so to speak, because ministry is hard. And these men and their churches could definitely stand a benefit from your prayers. And so I would ask you to, today to pray with me for Pastor Toby Loxton. I have the, the joy of, um, Alina and I both have the joy of uh, uh, taking him to Ixtapa. <laughs> and uh, I, we had a wonderful time with him. It was so encouraging for him to be reminded that he is not alone. There are times where we in the ministry feel alone. And um, it was my joy to, to as, a, as a fellow brother in the pulpit, to remind him he's not alone. Uh, it is my joy to, to let his church know that they don't stand alone. Um, to that end, not only am I going to ask you to pray for them in just a minute, but um, I would very much like for... Uh, for their church and our church to try to get together for a potluck at some point during the summer. Um, so more details to come. I don't know if it's definitely going to happen, but we're, we're trying to see if that would happen. Um, pray for Pastor Toby Loxton and New Beginnings Church in Linwood, if you would. I'll give you a minute and then I'll go in. Lord, I thank you for my brother Toby. I thank you for his associate elder Jordan. I thank you for New Beginnings Church, a body of believers that you have been blessing for several years in Linwood. I thank you for their love for the Word of God. I thank you for the testimony that they are a church who love the Lord Jesus Christ and they faithfully and boldly assemble so that they can come and hear Christ Jesus preached. We lift these brothers and sisters up to you. And even though we don't know them very well, Lord, we love them because uh, in light of what Paul has been saying in Ephesians 4, we have one faith, we have one Lord, we have one baptism, we are in one body, we have one hope, we have one God and Father. And in those things, Lord, whatever earthly commonalities we may have with them, whatever languages we may share with them, whatever skin tones we may share with them, whatever values or hobbies or activities we may share, we share the things that really matter. And we will be celebrating 
the unity that we have in these things for generation upon generation to come. Even though we don't know them well, we love them because you love them. We lift them up and ask that you would continue to prosper them, continue to grow their church, and let the Lord Jesus, let his sweet name be magnified as, as it is faithfully lifted up and proclaimed every Sunday. Amen. Deuteronomy 28. We're going to do verses 1 to 14, and someone's thinking, wow, only 14 verses, sweet. Well, next week, I'm going to ask a favor. <laughs> now it shall be. And, and this chapter is really the, the Old Covenant in a nutshell. The Old Covenant had promises of blessing and curses. Obedience brought blessing. That's what we're going to see today. Next week we will see what happens if and when God's people did not keep the Old Covenant. And I hope you can see this is why the New Covenant is so much sweeter. Now it shall be, if, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall be you in the city, and blessed shall be you in the country. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground, and the offspring of your beasts, and the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord shall cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They will come out against you one way and will flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing upon you in your barns and in all that you put your hand to, and he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, as he swore to you if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. So all the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they will be afraid of you. The Lord will make you abound in prosperity. In the offspring of your body and in the offspring of your, of your beast and in the produce of your ground in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give to you. The Lord will open for you his good storehouse. The heavens to give rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail. And you only will be above. And you will not be underneath if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God. I hope the if just rings out as we read this. If you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I charge you today to observe them carefully and do not turn aside from any of the words which I command you today, to the right or to the left, to go after other gods. To serve them. Let's pray. Lord, in, in, in light of this summary of the blessings of the Old Covenant, we are reminded that you were exceedingly kind to Israel. You didn't show your love upon them because they were a mighty people. You didn't show your, your love and your grace and your kindness to them. You didn't show this favor to them because of anything they did or anything that they could give to you or anything they brought to the table. You showed your kindness to them because you are a kind God. And you showed your love, your love to them because you are a loving God who made a promise to do this very thing to their forefathers. So on one hand, we, we thank you for being this kind, loving, gracious God who is just generally good to men. And on the other hand, we praise you and thank you even more for in spite of 
though this law that men could not keep, you gave us a better covenant and a better promise, a better rest, with better blessings, better provisions, better security, a better citizenship and a better nation with better boundaries. All of these things that we receive by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who bore in his body every single act of defiance, every single transgression and breaking of your law, and in turn gave us as a gift his perfect righteousness so that when you look at us through his blood, you see people who are worthy of receiving this covenant. It's all because of Christ, it's not because of us. How wonderfully gracious the blessings we have in Christ are. And so we thank you, Lord. Thank you. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. The gift given to the whole church. The gift given to the whole church. We'll be covering chapter 4, not even the whole of verse 11 today. And for this reason, I don't have a, uh, an outline for you uh, on the PowerPoint because I had originally endeavored to cover 11 and 12. We're not even finishing 11. So at the last minute, I have a sub-outline that I think is pretty easy to follow. And so I'll give that to you in a minute. But we've been looking at Christ's personal involvement, his personal activity in building and enriching and blessing his church. We've seen that Christ purposefully and he thoughtfully gives each individual Christian, each and every one of you, a unique gift. We saw that in verse 9. To each of us, to each and every one of us, he has given a gift according to the measure of his gift. He's given grace, rather, according to the measure of his gift. And the fact that he did this emphasized the diversity of the body. The diversity of the body, each of us being different. Each of us having a different contribution that we make and that we give to his church. We have different strengths. Each one of us has different weaknesses. And that's okay, because one person's weakness is met and supplied by another person's strength. One person's de de deficiency is met and provided for by another person's abundance. And so it's okay that we have weaknesses. And after what seems like the shortest rabbit trail that Paul has ever had in his life, in verses 8 and 9, he, he circles back, still talking about the gifts that Christ give, has given and is giving to the church. He circles back to, to touch on the unity, uh, the, the sense in which there are gifts that Christ has given to us as individuals, but there are also gifts that he has given to every single one. Gifts that every single one of us Together, share and benefit from. And we will see that the gifts are word men. They are men of the word. And here, here's your sub outline. The word men that Christ graciously gives to the entire church, not just to individuals, not just to the, to the theologians in their ivory towers, not just to the bookworms, but to every single one of us. 
Christ has gifted you first the apostles, and then prophets, and then evangelists, and then pastors and teachers. These are the gifts that Christ has and is, well, some of them only has, some of them has and still is giving to the entire church to benefit from. So let's, let's read verse 11. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Now as we, as we look at this list, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, you're going to see that each and every category, each and every office, in some way pertains to the Word of God. That's why a second ago I called them wordmen. They are all men of the Word. Christ's gift to His whole church is inherently and intimately wrapped around the disclosure of His Word. His revelation, His Word, His revealed truth is the most precious thing He could give to the church. And so He made sure that every single member of His body benefits from His Word. And so each of these men, they, are, they, are, they, they were and are dedicated to the disclosure and the explanation and the exhortation of Christ's Word to Christ's people. Now, let's work our way through this, through this sub-list. The apostles, he, he says there in verse 11, and he gave some as apostles. Now, what are apostles? The word apostle meant somebody who is sent. They're a sent one. And in a very general sense, was used to describe really any kind of messenger, any kind of Ambassador or envoy who was sent on a mission to do some kind of task. And really, even on the practical, very common level, even a servant was, in some sense, could have been a, a sent one to do some kind of task. Now, when I was a young child, my parents often put me on a very important task. Boy, I need you to go adjust the volume on the TV or change the channel. And I would be sent eight or ten feet across the room. Now now we just, I mean, there's even an app. I have a Roku thingy on my phone. But it, it is, it, it, it began as a very common term. It was an everyday term. And in this sense, we, we talk about the apostle with a little a. However, Jesus appointed specially qualified and uniquely gifted men. And he made an office. And when we talk about these men, when we talk about these apostles, we, we, we say the apostles with a big A. These are, these are a, a, an official office. These are special apostles. They're not like common everyday apostles. And Christ qualified them and he gifted them to receive, to record, and to transmit New Testament revelation and New Testament doctrine. And we see that they were specially qualified and specially gifted in that they were to have they were to meet qual these qualifications. They were to demonstrate their giftedness. One, they were required to have been with Jesus during his earthly ministry. In Acts chapter 1, near the very end of the chapter, Peter is discussing uh, replacing Judas. And he says, in verse 21 and 22 of Acts 1, Peter says that whoever is going to replace Judas, whoever is going to fill his office, needed to be among those who, quote, accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John, until the day that he was taken up, from us. It needed to be someone who heard and had an eyewitness account 
and could provide an eyewitness testimony to the things that Jesus did and to the things that Jesus said. So that in Matthew 28, 8, when, when they are called out as, as ambassadors to make disciples of men, and he tells them to, to teach others all the things that I've commanded you. Well, you would know that what these apostles are giving you really did, really were things that Jesus did or said. Another requirement was that they were they must have been a witness of the resurrected Christ. They needed to see firsthand that Jesus Christ did not stay in the tomb, but that he was raised up. The very the very last phrase of Acts 1.22. One of these, to which Peter is talking about those who, those who have accompanied us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Third qualification that an, a big A apostle had to meet was found in their demonstration of their unique gifting. And this is referring to the Unique gifting of supernatural signs, miracles, and wonders. You'll remember that even before uh, his final trip into Jerusalem, Christ sent his disciples on an itinerant preaching ministry. And he empowered them to do these sign gifts that demonstrated these aren't your normal, everyday heralds. They do things... That normal people can't do. And the book of Acts records them doing those very same things. Healing people. Casting out demons. And the fact that normal men can't do those things is even corroborated when the seven sons of Sceva try to go cast out demons. And the demons say, Christ I know and Paul I know, but who in the dickens are you? <laughs> Paul says, when he's defending his apostleship against the so-called super-apostles in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul reaffirms this qualification. He says, the signs of a true apostle, of a validated apostle, were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. And now the fact that the apostles could do these things. You, you might think, wow, that was really swell that they could really impact and change someone's life. Heal them of a disease. Cast out a demon. And that was, that was a great thing they did. It, it was a gift of mercy and it was a gift of grace. It was a manifestation of God's grace to the people that they were sent to for sure. But that wasn't the substance of the gift. It wasn't the real gift that the people benefited from. The real gift, the substance, the, the beef in the gift was found in that these men were the primary means of recording the life and the teachings of Jesus in the pages of Scripture. The Scripture is the real gift. It was either... These men, or it was these men, either directly by their hands or by the hands of their closest associates. In the case of uh, Peter, we think that, that uh, Mark, John Mark, wrote not only Mark, but 1 Peter. Scholars say that 2 Peter has a notably different and lower quality of Greek. And you might expect that from a blue-collar fisherman. And so Mark, not being an apostle, wrote Peter's memoirs in the Gospel of Mark. And he was an amanuensis for First Peter. Hebrews and Luke were written by a man who traveled extensively with the Apostle Paul. James and Jude, not, not themselves not being apostles, were leaders in the church alongside all the other apostles save for Paul. And so every single pen who wrote every single New Testament scripture 
had a strong, either a direct or a very trustworthy association with men who were with Jesus and they saw the risen Jesus and they could demonstrate that Jesus' power was working through them. It was these men who gave us the New Testament scriptures, the documents and the letters that the Spirit of God himself inspired and superintended. And what do I mean by that? There are some, there are some people who think that the, the inspiration of scripture means that the, the writers, the apostles, they became robots or puppets and, or automatons and they just kind of became like zombies and the Holy Spirit was zapping down what to say, and that's not what it is all, at all. These men wrote according to their own agendas. Their writing was influenced by their own unique and individual characters and inspired by their own circumstances. And, and they decided what they were going to say and how they were going to say it. And so, in one sense, it was their work. And yet, at the same time, from start to finish, every single detail, every single thought, every single stroke of the pen was superintended, was orchestrated, guided, governed. They were led. First Peter, Second uh, Peter one, nineteen and twenty says that these men were moved along by the Holy Spirit. They were guided every single stroke of the pen. So that while each and every letter was a product of their hand, each and every letter was at the same time a product of the Holy Spirit. And so when you read Paul, you're reading Paul's words, and they came from Paul's mind, they were fueled by Paul's heart. And we, and we see that. We see that. We, we see him rejoicing. We see him crying. We see him being frustrated over the people that he's talking about or, or writing to, and that's all genuine. Yet at the same time, we are reading the Word of God, the Holy Scripture. Second Timothy 3.16, which everyone in Sunday school, one of, one of the Perry boys want to get up and recite it again? <laughs> so I'm not going to put you on the spot. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. Well, actually, let, 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 let me capitalize on that. Inspired of God. God breathed. It came from God. It came from within Him. As your breath comes from within you. The source of the Scripture is God Himself. And is uniquely qualified to do the things that the rest of the verse says. It is profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness, so that whoever has those things, whoever has those scriptures, is adequate, sufficient, complete, and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Scripture allows us to do those things. Not Wikipedia, not in the Encyclopedia Britannica, not the guy down at the gas station who you used to be able to take any kind of question to and get any kind of answer. It is the scriptures. Not only do they reveal what our good works are, not only do they equip us for good works, but they reveal Christ to us. And I hope you can see how precious this gift is was and is to the church. Where the Old Testament scriptures foreshadowed Christ, hinted at Christ, prepared the way for Christ, the New Testament scriptures clearly portray and put front, square, and center Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior of men. New Testament scriptures, these, these apostolic writings, as, as church historians have called them, put Christ center stage. Christ and his identity as the God-man. And his 
divine work of being supreme teacher of men, supreme healer of men, supreme savior of men, and supreme Lord of men. The scriptures say on one hand, Christ is everything that men need and more. And scripture not only declares that, scripture declares how you may know him and how you may receive him. Second Peter 1.3 says that everything, every single thing for life and for godliness has been provided through the true knowledge of him. Where is that true knowledge written down and provided for you to discover for yourself? The scripture. And this is why we say that the apostolic writings that the apostles, as, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.20, the apostles along with the New Testament prophets were the, the foundation of the church. The apostolic writings were the foundation of Christian faith and belief. Apart from them, apart from the foundation they provided, the church could not be built. I'm no construction worker. I'm, I'm not an engineer, but... I don't think a structure built without a foundation is going to last very long. Right, Charlie? That's Andrew's. Right, Andrew? <laughs> well, Jen, now we know who to go to for. <laughs> By the way, Charlie, did you, did you need to make a call? Yeah. Did? yeah. Okay, good. Without, without the apostles, we wouldn't have a foundation in the church, of the church, and the church would not have been built. And so in no uncertain terms, we owe our Christian lives, we owe the certainty of our Christian hope to these men and to their writings. And here's, here's the beauty, uh, here's the preciousness of, of this gift. You can know for certain that you have the authentic and the legitimate testimony of the one that God has sent to save you from sin. It's not just, it's not just a, 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 a con the way we say we contemporary, con um, the way we say we hope for something now. I hope I find a parking spot. I hope there's not a long wait. I hope I get this. I hope I get that. I hope that doesn't happen. That's not how we hope. That's not how we have our hope in Christ. The hope is in Christ is certain, and we know it's certain. We know that we have the authentic and the legitimate testimony in Christ because of the united, uniform testimony of these men. I, I had a talk with, with a neighbor earlier this week, and he uh, we were talking about church history, and he said, well, didn't the, didn't the apostles and, and Jesus' disciples, didn't they all kind of, you know, go around and do their own thing, and, you know, uh, John had, you know, his guys, and Peter had his guys, and, you know, didn't they kind of have their own little thing going on? And I said, no, absolutely not. There was a united testimony. They were in complete agreement about who Jesus was and what he said. And there was such an agreement, there was such a, a unanimity in this foundation of Christian faith and Christian practice that some 40 to 50 years after the scene, Jack knows where I'm going, because we were in the first John study together, 40 to 50 years after the gospel first went out, and all the apostles but John are gone. John's the only one left. John could say this. And this only makes sense if the teaching and the testimony that the apostles disseminated all said the same thing. If they all said different things, John could not say this. 1 John 2.24 As for you, let that which you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. Only a unified body of doctrine, faith, 
and practice would allow John to say that. Otherwise, because First John is a is a uh, it's called a Catholic letter. It was a general letter. It was written to many churches. And if Peter said this and John said this, you'd have people. Well, that's not you heard that from the beginning. I heard this from the beginning. Because of the united testimony of these men, you can know. Jesus really did say this. Jesus really did do that. That's, that is sweet to know that you know the truth and that it's been given to you. Okay, let's go back to verse 11. He gave some as apostles and he gave some as prophets. And we looked at these prophets back when we covered chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul said that you are God's household, having been built on the, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. And these are not, as I said then, these are not the Old Testament prophets who foretold a Christ in type and shadow. These are... These are New Testament prophets who ministered alongside. They ministered uh, as contemporaries with the apostles. Now these prophets, these New Testament prophets, they had a temporary role. They weren't around for a very long time. They had a temporary role in speaking and revealing the mind of Christ in the decades that it took for the apostles to complete the canon. And for those letters to circulate and to reach all the churches. Remember that this was centuries. This was centuries before printing presses and emails. And for churches to get their hands on the book of the Bible, on the books of the Bible, on the letters that Paul wrote, on the letters that John wrote, you know how they got their copy? They borrowed someone's copy and they put that down and they took a, a blank piece of parchment some cases, they even scratched off something that was already written, and then they would copy it. And some of you got the absolute joy of copying something for yourself if you were in the Sunday school class. Was there anyone, anyone who was in the Sunday school, did anyone not make any errors? I made errors. It was very revealing how frustrating that must have been. Imagine writing... The Gospel of Luke. Longest book in the New Testament. For some time, there were many churches who did not have a complete Bible. Now, imagine being in a Gentile church, and especially, especially after 70 AD, where uh, the Jews really separated themselves from the Gentiles. Uh, and from the Christians, and so um, you you didn't always have immediate access to the Old Testament scriptures. And there would be churches. There were churches. There were churches who, at times, only had perhaps one or two or maybe three books. It would take decades for all the churches around the the world to get copies of all the apostolic writings. And so imagine you just had a gospel, and you just had one of the epistles. Imagine you didn't have Romans or First Peter, and you wouldn't, you didn't have the benefit of Romans thirteen or or First Peter uh, two or three. How would you know what the relationship between the church and the local government is? If you didn't have 1 Corinthians, how would you know what God expects you to do with marriage and remarriage? You get see where I'm going? If you didn't have Titus or 1 Timothy, how would you know what, what an, a man who wants to be an elder, how would you know what kind of man he needs to be? If you didn't have the book of Revelation... What would you, what would, uh, how would your questions about how God's going to wrap everything up get answered? And so these men filled the gap and they held the line until the 
whole church could receive the, the completed canon of Scripture. And it, it really, it goes beyond, it goes beyond just their questions being answered. I mean, think about, think about what 2 Timothy 3.16 says. It is profitable. Scripture is profitable. You stand to gain when you apply it towards teaching and reproof, marking out, identifying errors, correction, correcting those errors, and training. It is the Scripture that makes you sufficient. It is scripture that makes you adequate and equipped for every good work. I mean, some of us, especially if you were in Awana or, or some of these other programs, some of us may have been conditioned to think that the best we get from scripture is being able to recite it and then we get a merit badge. And we feel, we feel good, we feel accomplished. It is through his word that God perfects us, changes us, he reproves us. He informs us. He calls us to action. He shows us what our good works are. He, he equips us for those good works. He calls us to faith through His Word. He comforts us through His Word. He trains us through His Word. Through His Word. The Word is His means to make us into the Christians that He calls us and expects us to be. It is... It is through his word. That is his means. That is how he does it. No Christian becomes, what one man said, that no Christian become, becomes a strong Christian by allowing dust to build on his Bible. Show me someone whose Bible, because he uses it and he reads it, is falling apart, and I'll show you someone whose life isn't. Another man said, there's no such thing as a godly, growing Christian who is not deeply involved in the Word of God. And I alluded to this earlier, I'll say it again, 2 Peter 1, 3. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and to godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Matthew 4.4, 4, as well as Luke 4.4, 4, quoting Deuteronomy, says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Man lives by the word of God. The just live by faith, and faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? Men's opinions? No, the word of God. Put negatively, Hosea 4.6, my people perish for lack of knowledge. My people are destroyed. They are torn asunder. They cease prospering. They cease living. They are undone because they do not know the word of God. They don't live by the word of God. They don't apply the word of God. And so if the spiritual well-being and if, and if the life and if the if godliness of God's people is inherently tied into them knowing God and, and knowing Jesus and trusting in Him, if it's tied into them walking according to His will for their lives, here it is, how good it was for God to provide not only the apostles who, who initially gave this, the New Testament scriptures, but he also provided these, these New Testament prophets who held the line and they filled the gaps until all of the churches could get their hands on those precious, precious scriptures that did all these things. Imagine how starved they, they would have been throughout all those years and decades until they had all the canon. And you, you, I hope you're still in Ephesians. Look down at 4.14. This, I mean, I'm kind of 
uh, playing my cards here, showing you where this is all going. Paul is building up the fact that we should be we should be appreciative of what Christ has done in providing us his men with his word. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 is what happens to those who don't have the word. They are like children. They are tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and trickery of men. I don't know if you know this, but there are some really cunning people out there who are out to deceive you. Sometimes they do it just because they, they have a thrill for, for seeing damage done. Other, other people do it because it can be very lucrative. A lot of the false teaching, and even, even in your Christian bookstore, these people make a lot of money. Tossed around by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Having the scripture, knowing the scripture, walking in the scripture prevents that. And put positively, look at verse 13. If you have the knowledge of the Son of God, you attain uh, you attain to the mature to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. You get full of Christ, you get his knowledge fill, filled up in your life, then what, what he says in verse 14 will not happen to you. And I, I don't want to spend too much time on that because I'll be stealing my own thunder. These New Testament prophets held the line and provided what was needed until the church could get their hands on the completed Bible. And consequently, consequently, as the canon was completed, as the apostolic writings were finished, guess what? The, the apostolic office closed. And as, as the church, uh, it took a couple uh, extra decades, you know, e even after John passed on, it took a while for for even his writings to get everywhere. As the church received the, the completed canon, guess what else closed? The office of the New Testament prophet. And so what, what does that mean? Like to practically today, if the offices of the apostles and the New Testament prophets are closed, what does that mean about men and women who call themselves apostles and prophets? I see them all the time on my Facebook feed. You know, it used to be, you know, before the internet, it used to be you'd only know this stuff if, if you were in the cities where these people are. Now you see them everywhere. And I, just two things to, to point, I don't want to go down a rabbit trail, but just two things to reaffirm that people professing to be apostles and prophets today are not. One, Paul has already said that the apostles and prophets were a foundation for Christian doctrine. The foundation... Again, Andy, Andy, how many times is the foundation laid? Sometimes you get it right. If it's done by the men that Jesus appointed... They got it right. So, yeah, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Last I checked, the, the foundation's already laid. So, so what, whatever they're doing is redundant. At the very best, they're only reaffirming what has already been said again and again and again and again and again. Mm -hmm. I'd, say I'd say the fact that they often lay other foundations that take people towards other doctrines is very concerning. But the, the, the foundation thing makes their very presence today redundant and unneeded. But the other thing is the is the accuracy test, the prophet test. What prophet test? Well, Deuteronomy 18.22. Uh, uh, God is telling the people of Israel to listen to his prophets, and God rightly anticipates the question, well, how will we know if someone is speaking for the Lord? And God says, I'm glad you asked me, I'll tell you. If, 
If the thing that the so-called prophet said doesn't happen, then you will know that they weren't speaking for me. And how many times has a prophet, I mean, uh, who, who uh, remember uh, Ken, Kenneth Copeland blowing COVID away? Guess what? COVID wasn't blown away. Uh, what else? I mean, jo Joseph Smith, uh, a number of others. Um, how many times, it seems every couple years, these, these, these so-called prophets say that the, the end of the world is going to happen in 2012 or 2016. Or something's going to happen because of, the, because of the blood moon or the whatever. When absolutely nothing happens. Strong, they are, these men have a strong tendency to be quite non-apostolic. They abuse the scripture. They lead people away from the scripture. Paul said in, in, in Acts 2.30 that, that these false wolves will raise up and they will draw people away after themselves and away from Christ. And that is just a reoccurring theme I see in many people who call themselves prophets and apostles. Okay. Third. He gave some as evangelists. Some as evangelists. And here, this is, there's a transition here. We transition from, from the offices that have closed and that are no longer open to those that, that have not been closed and it is these individuals that Christ has faithfully given to his church, and he is still faithfully giving to his church, and he will faithfully give to his church until the day that he returns for his church. Now, evangelist comes from the word for gospel, which itself means good news. And these men, well, I... Uh, these men were heralds, they were couriers, they were transmitters of the, of the good news, being the good news of salvation, and they, they took the gospel to those who had never heard it. Now, if you grew up watching uh, evangelists on the, on the television or listening to them on the radio, there are good evangelists and there are, there are poor evangelists. An evangelist is not a man with 10 suits and 10 sermons who runs a road show. That does not an evangelist make. Evangelists are missionaries, or uh, biblically, they were missionaries, they were church planters, and they were ministers on the move. And practically, with the exception of writing scripture and with the uh, uh, perhaps with the exception of the gifts, of the sign gifts and the healings and the miracles, they were uh, very, very similar and they did practically the same thing as the apostles. They were men who went into the dark corners of the world where the light of God did not shine. They went into the public squares. They went into the places of commerce. They went and would speak to anybody and to everybody who would give them the time of day. And some of you are thinking, oh, that sounds so intimidating. Well, going into the public squares and making an announcement and gathering a crowd and talking to them was much more socially acceptable and normal than today. Uh, and I'll remind you of Acts 17 when Paul goes into the Areopagus. He just strikes up a conversation and uh, Luke records that the people just ate it all up because they loved hearing new things. That way it was a very common thing to, to, to go and just strike up conversations and make announcements. And that's what they did. And they would take the light of the gospel and they would shine it brightly and they would preach Christ Jesus. And they would compel. They would convince men and women to trust in Christ and believe in him and receive forgiveness for their sins and receive the gift of eternal life. Aaron, that sounds a lot like what a pastor does. Well, yeah, kind of. The difference is that Acts 6-4 tells us pastors 
have a responsibility to minister the word and to pray for those that are, that are placed and appointed under their care. Pastors have a responsibility, elders have a responsibility to minister to those who are within the church. The apostles said in, in Acts 6, 2, 2 through 4, it's not good that we go serve tables. The idea is going out to serve tables and thereby neglecting the ministry of the word and prayer. Evangelists, on the other hand, they do minister the word and they do pray, but they, they are strategically gifted and equipped to minister to the word, the word to those who are outside. Now, over the years, we, we, we've seen some contemporary evangelists. Uh, some are very well known. Billy Graham, Billy Sunday. I don't know if Billy is all uh, like a prerequisite, but uh, there's uh, Dwight L. Moody. Um, some who are still living are Ray Comfort, Todd Friel, great men. Uh, two that, that I know, I, I think some of you may know because they've been here, Anthony Silvestro and Andrew Rappaport. These are, these are men who have, uh, well, in Andrew's case, he's just unusual, but these men have an, an unusual aptitude to engage with a broad variety of people. These are men who are quick on their feet. These are men who are good at listening and speaking to those whom they are trying to reach. And I have to admit, it is a challenge for me when I'm saying something and someone says something back to me and I try to respond to what they say and then I completely forget, where was I? These men are men who are gifted at, they make an argument and they can stop and they can respond to questions. They can spot holes in arguments. They can uh, respond to criticism at, at the drop of a hat, on a dime. And they're good at it. Where the pastor has weeks, months, and years to carefully and meticulously and prayerfully work with those who are under their care. As a as an artisan would work on a big slab of marble with a little tiny chisel. Tap, 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 tap. Tap, 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 The, the evangelist is like a guy with a jackhammer. <laughs> he has a limited amount of time. He's got to break ground. They are very gifted. They are adept at zeroing in and finding appropriate and timely transitions in the things uh, they, they can hear things and they can transition. They, they find openings in the things that their audience says to, to bridge the gap between material things to spiritual realities, especially those spiritual realities that their audience needs to be confronted with. Andrew Rappaport uh, uh, has an example of this, and if you haven't seen him, maybe you've seen Ray Comfort or Todd Friel do these things. Andrew Rappaport has a, a, a thing, a segment he does on his podcast called the Spiritual Transition Game, and he 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 gives whoever he's interviewing, whoever he has on the podcast, he says, "Get just give me a word, give me any kind of activity, hobby, the name of a movie, whatever. Just give me something, and I will transition into giving the gospel." And he does it in ways that just make my jaw drop. Now, as with all of these offices, Paul says that some are given. Some are given as evangelists. Which, what does that mean? If some are given, some are taken. <laughs> no. <laughs> If some are given, some are not. Thank you. Okay, I'm gonna, next question is going to this side. This is why I keep my mouth shut during Sunday school. The fact that some are given means that some are not. And so I want to ask you a question And in the time that is fleeting. Does the fact... That some 
are appointed to be an evangelist. And that some are gifted. And that some are adept and some excel. Does that mean that those who are not appointed, those who are not adept, those who are not skilled or excel, are not expected to share the gospel? No. no. Okay, good. Some being specially gifted and appointed does not mean that you and I don't participate in the work of evangelism. Pastors are called to do the work of an evangelist, 2 Peter 4, 5. They may not be going out in the public square, they may not be uh, going door to door as much as they'd like, but to some degree, whatever doors they do have, they should knock, and they should take advantage of their opportunity. As far as everybody else, as far as the common, the quote, common Christian, Matthew 28, 20, go and make disciples, the very end of the Great Commission, says, uh, includes teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. What was the... So you, you get to that, you get to the very end of Matthew 28, 20, teaching them all that I've commanded you. What is the last commandment just prior to that phrase that Jesus gave his disciples? What? See, everyone's on everyone's on edge now. Go and make disciples. The very last commandment at that point was go and make disciples. He's commanding his, his disciples, and then he says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That includes the command to go out and make disciples. And so, disciples, every disciple has the, imper- uh, the prerogative to make disciples. Also, 1 Peter 3.15, this is not written just to pastors, this is written to believers. Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you. Now, what, what is this def- defense? It's a technical term called a, a, an apologia, and it was a thought-out defense. It was a thought-out explanation, and it was typically used um, in, in a court setting. Now, I've, I've had very minimal uh, experience in court. I've had more experience. I'm more qualified because of watching Perry Mason. Um, but I've never seen a lawyer make a defense and go, well, Judge, I just think, I just think, you know, he ought to be left off. I feel, I feel that, you know, mercy should be shown. That's a lawyer that needs to be fired. A lawyer, when a defense is being made, it is a concrete, reason, reasonable, thought-out explanation as to why this person doesn't, doesn't deserve to be found guilty or does found, deserve to be found guilty. It's not a time for feelings. It's not a time for opinions. It's concrete, objective, reasonable, thought-out conviction based on truth. Peter says, make an apologia. Make a defense to everyone who asks you to explain why you hope, why you believe what you believe. Have a thought out explanation. That's what we're all called to do. The difference being is that the evangelist who is one, is one who is specially called, he is especially appointed, and he is especially adept and skilled at doing this. And, he, and that's seen as he's able to engage all kinds of people with different backgrounds, different questions, and they're able to respond quickly and effectively to situations that you and I might find rather daunting. And so, on one hand, we should all be involved in evangelism. We should all think through, we should all be able to explain to others why we believe what we believe. Some of us, Some of you might consider whether God is raising you up to be an evangelist, one who is specially gifted to go out 
and to share the gospel. And as a church, we should definitely, definitely be supporting these people, both those who are within our congregation and those who are abroad. And we've been doing that. We've been supporting Marco Bartolome in Germany for the last couple of years, as well as Jack and Sarah Moyer at Camp Gilead. And those of you who are around for the business meeting will get to hear from Jack about that. And I want to save pastors and teachers for the next time because A, I'm out of time. And even if I had a few minutes left, I wouldn't be doing you any service if we just rushed through that. And so, let me... Let me land this. What I want you to see is that on the apostles, with the New Testament prophets, with the evangelists, these are men, these are gifted men who have the fingerprints of Christ on them, on the circumstances that shaped them, his fingerprints are on the contributions they have made to the church. I, I, hopefully I've made that clear. And that we wouldn't be where we are today. We wouldn't have the hope we would have today if, if not for these men. His fingerprints are all over them. Raising them up. Appointing them. Placing them. Sustaining them. Preserving them upholding them, empowering them, strengthening them, leading them, and even in their final days. And I, I don't have time to go through those in my mind. Polycarp, Cyprian, John Huss, some of these men, Hugh Latimer. Google play the man, Mr. Ridley. You will see a man who is being upheld and sustained by the grace of Christ as he is being burned at the stake. Google that, please. Hugh Latimer, Play the man, Mr. Ridley. I see these men, I see the apostles, I see the prophets, I see the evangelists, and I hope that you will see in pastors and teachers that these men have the fingerprints of Jesus Christ on them for your good. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for every good gift that you give to your church. Help us to appreciate these gifts, help us to not take them for granted. Lord, please fill all things as you fill our minds with, with the knowledge of what you would have us do and what you would have us believe, what you would have us strive for. And be glorified as we are a church who is week in and week out, crafted, molded, and shaped into your likeness.